I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines The Sopranos one episode at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now. If you love the podcast, this project, and what it's all about, please spread the word. Share this episode or your favorite one with one new person. That's all it takes. You can follow us on all the socials at Potabang. And if you're up for it, you can support the show by visiting glow.fm slash Potabang. Takes about 60 seconds. To play in the next trivia show for a chance to win swag, guest on the pod, or just secure permanent bragging rights, DM at Potabang on Instagram. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is my conversation with Carl Capotorto. He played Little Polly on the show. Carl's both a writer and actor. He has a memoir, which I read before talking to him, that's really good. It's called Twisted Head. In addition to that, and logging 24 appearances on The Sopranos, he's acted in and written for HBO's The Deuce, and vinyl. I enjoyed this one. I hope you do too. Here's me talking to Carl. I actually uh, finished your memoir, uh, Twisted Head. Oh, uh, wow. Earlier this morning. I I overly prepare for a lot of this stuff. Yeah, Um, you sure do. Explain (laughs) the genesis of your name for listeners that might not know. The genesis of the name, I don't know exactly, but the meaning of the name is uh, is Twisted Head, so Capo Torto, but Capo in the sense of a leader or a ruler, like like Capo di Stato or or or, or um, you know a Capo in the mob. So so I guess you know in the background of the name, somewhere back there, there was a twisted uh, you know ruler of some little town, and I, I I don't know if that's the genesis, but it might be. People tell me it could have also it could have had to do with maybe some some terrain that was like a twisted like a mountain that looked like a twisted head. But but uh, my guess is that there was an ancestor who was like a bossy little twisted guy because it fits with a lot of the men in my family. So I'm going with that. Yeah, it was interesting how you describe it and how you describe other people in the neighborhood that have names that are descriptors for what they look like and how they act. Um, yeah. <laughs> was the name problematic for you growing up? It kind of, the, the tenor of it, the, there was a little bit of complication there, but can you can you briefly describe uh, sort of like the introduction to the memoir and, and your childhood and your father played a significant role and, um, yeah. and, and, and just sort of like lay a little foundation so that we can get to know you a little bit better and then I can jump into how you got into acting? You know, I was born and raised in the in the Bronx, and um, you know, I I came of age I, like became a teenager in the early seventies. So I was born in fifty nine. So you know, by um, what my math is not great, but by seventy two, how old am I? Fourteen? Yeah, I guess fourteen. So that though, you know, those were the formative years, and you know, seventies New York was a pretty um, intense uh, intense place. I you know grew up in a working class neighborhood. It was. Um, it was the immediate surroundings, my immediate surroundings. It was mostly a Jewish neighborhood. And then, but the way that area of the Bronx, it's kind of the Northeast corner of the Bronx and the way it's laid out there, every few blocks it changes. So, um, so we, this was a little bit of a, a Jewish enclave, a few blocks over, 
where I would uh, go to church, St. Lucy's Church. That was very Italian over there. And then up on Appleton Avenue was a black neighborhood. There was a Puerto Rican neighborhood right behind it. So it was it was um, it was unusual. I think I don't I don't know if uh, you know a lot of places in New York or anywhere are that. Or it's like a little bit segregated in a way, but but yet very close together. And then at public school, of course, you, you all come together. Right. And seventies was the era of race riots and and all this stuff. It was a it was a pretty intense time. I would trade it for nothing. I'm so glad that my parents never moved us out of there. You know, a, a lot of people moved up into Westchester or out to Long Island, and they just stayed put. And I'm I'm really glad because it was it was very um, alive way to grow up for very sure. Lively. Being in a city with such a diverse the melting pot aspect yeah, that so many people it. love about the city today. What inspired the memoir? You know, it's funny because um, that really was sort of accidental. I was um, the Sopranos was wrapping up, and I was really. You know, I always was a writer first. I I started out as a playwright and I stumbled into acting through an accidental way, which I can tell you about if you like. But um, but but I found myself acting and I I really loved it. And and Sopranos was a fantastic experience for for me in those years. And and then it was wrapping up. I'll be very candid and tell you, I never made a lot of money on the Sopranos. I had a brilliant experience but i never made a lot of money and so you know i i didn't have like a, a bunch of savings to live on i didn't know what the next thing was going to be i didn't have any writing work lined up and i was sort of tired i was finding myself at a moment of really tired of pushing pushing and pushing and i thought you know i'm gonna do nothing for a while i'm gonna just do nothing and i'm gonna trust that i don't end up you know, homeless or something. And, and let's see what happens. And, um, long story short, what ended up happening, I did, wasn't writing. I just said, I'm just not going to write anything, but I was part of this writing group that would meet every week. And, and what ended up happening is that I didn't, I didn't bring writing in, but at the end of each session in with this writing group, we usually open a bottle of wine and sit, sit and hang out. And I ended up telling these stories of, of growing up. And I really was just doing it to entertain myself. They sort of bubbled up out of this um, act of not trying to come up with new material or whatever. This is what bubbled up, which is these old stories that entertained me to tell them. And so I started telling them and then the group would ask for it every week. It became like a feature of our meetings. They would say, could you do a couple of those stories? And I and I would. I'd unearth some more and tell them. And then I slowly started doing them on stage in different venues, like storytelling evenings. And uh, uh, and a, an agent, a book agent, came and saw me and said, you know, it sounds like there's a book. That's how it this. always happens, right? Isn't that funny? It's like the thing you're not trying to do. And, uh, and she said to me, this wonderful woman, Christine Dahl is her name. She, she's at ICM. And, and she, she, was just, uh, she was just really smart about it because she didn't apply any pressure, you know. She just said, have you thought about it? Do you think that you have a book in you? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And I didn't think so. But I said, absolutely. And she said, well, let's, you know, meet, call me. Let's get together. And we spent about a year working on excavating 
the material. I mean, she would sort of guide me. Here's what has to happen next and so on. And here's what a book proposal looks like. And you had to write sample chapters and write an outline of the book. And you had to, of course, go deeper. It couldn't just be these stories that were entertaining anecdotes. You had to get into the darker stuff. And for about a year, she led me through this process. And when I had enough and the proposal was uh, was polished enough, um, she was able to sell it. And then I spent about another year writing it. And then, it, by the way, it came out on, I think the date was October 8th of um what was the year of, of two that what was the year of the, the 2008 the big economic crash oh yeah the economic was meltdown 2008. Was the, 2008 yeah so and so my book came out on october 8th on october 7th is when george bush george w bush got on the uh got on the air and said you know the entire global economy is tanking and you know run for the hills so the book didn't sell a lot because people had their hair on fire right then all the banks were failing um, the banks were failing and it was that whole panic. So all the press we had lined up all fell away and all that stuff. But the book is there. It, it, you know, it, it's a nice thing about a book. It's it's not like a live show. It, you know, it, it never goes away. It's there. Um, so hopefully it gets discovered some at some point. It's interesting. Well, I, I discovered it. And it's the nice thing about podcasts Thank too. They're, they're always there. And um, uh, and it was v- yes, very, right. very well written. You have very eloquent turns of phrase and you can tell you know, just a few pages in that this, you know, you're a professional writer and it really shows. Oh, um, slowing down also, you mentioned how you just decided to do nothing and slow down. I, I love how, I love yeah. hearing how people say that. And sometimes the realization is that slowing down helps you gain focus. Yeah. Mysterious. How old were you when you came off The Sopranos? I think the show wrapped, as you just said, in 2007. Yeah. And, um, and I was born in 1959 so again, you got to help me out with the math. Well, it was like, uh, you know, let's call it 10 years. I was late 40s. Okay. I was, I was late 40s. Okay. How did you get into acting? You know, uh, again, accidental. And I will say that some of the best things in my life, and I know I'm not alone in this, have happened um, without my planning uh, for them. And, um, and acting was one of them. Uh, Sopranos, the way that came to me, was also something I wasn't trying to do. But, but in terms of the acting, I was, I was a playwright. I was. I spent a couple of summers at the O'Neill Theater Center. There was something called the National Playwrights Conference, which at the time in the '80s was a big a big deal to get selected to to go there. And they take ten plays a year, and they would mount them in kind of a workshop production. And and then most of the time you'd get uh, you know professional theaters would come and see those, and you'd get a production for the fall as a result of that. And it was quite a feather in your cap to get selected for the for this conference. And, and so as a young playwright, I, I was, um, I went there for two consecutive summers, 1984 and 1985. Um, by the way, August Wilson was there both those summers, which mm. was really, really thrilling. And he was also a, a young playwright. I mean, he was a little older than me and he was obviously a little, little bit further along, but he was not yet known. Fences was just about to premiere, um, uh, I'll have to check the books. Maybe Ma Rainey was out by then, but I think Fences was the first thing. And even though Ma Rainey was written before it, it got produced after. I think that's right. Anyway, regardless, um, I'm, I'm trying to convey that it was a pretty heady time to be there. Among the other writers who were there was uh, John Patrick Shanley. And he he uh, was a playwright of some renown, like a sort of downtown playwright at that time. And he went on, of course, to write Moonstruck. But at this time, 
um, it was after it was 84, 85. And then I had a, a as a result of the summer conference of 85, I had a play produced at Yale rep that, uh, winter, the winter following the 85 summer season. And it, it didn't go so well, let's just say. And I came home pretty upset. And, um, and now it was like January of, of 86, let's say. And John Shanley called me and he said, Hey, I just sold the screenplay and uh, it's going to be made into a movie. And I want you to go audition for this part. It takes place in the Bronx. And there's this, and I said, John, I don't, I don't act. And I don't want to go on an audition and make a fool of myself. You know, you know, no thanks. He said, no, just, just do me a favor. Just go even so they can just so they can hear an authentic Bronx accent. Will you just do that? I was like, okay. Uh, okay. As a favor to you, I'll go. And I, and I went and um, I really liked the experience of auditioning. I really liked it. And so I got a call back and I quickly called a, an acting teacher who I had become friends with at the O'Neill, actually, her name is Suzanne Shepard. And I said, Hey, before my next audition, can I work with you a little bit and understand, you know, what I'm doing and went up to her apartment and she kind of really opened my eyes up to some basic uh, tenets of the Meisner technique. And for some reason, they, I really took to them. I really understood this thing she was telling me. So I went back and I really nailed that callback. Long story short, there were like five or six more callbacks after that because they knew I didn't had never acted, but they liked what I was doing. And I ended up getting getting the role. And then that started this thing of doing like one independent film a year for about five years, um, culminating in a movie called Mac, written and directed by John Turturro. And that would have been, I think, 92 uh, when that movie came out. Mm -hmm. And um and then everything went really, really quiet acting wise. It just sort of stopped on its own, came in on its own and it stopped on its own. And I was focused on writing again. And I one day got a call from George Ann Walken to say, uh, do you want to come in and audition for the Sopranos? Out of the blue. Out of the blue. You had no reps. You had no managers shopping you. I had no that? nothing. No. I had no representation. I was not trying to act. I was not auditioning. It had been, you know, like I say, a number of years, at least uh, seven years or so since I had acted. Wow. You know? No kidding. Yeah. Were you ever able to excavate her process or how she found you? Or well, what? yeah, she told me that. Um, and, uh, if, when, you know, if and when, I hope when, you um, speak to David Chase, he could confirm this. You know, he liked to find actors who were not who were a little bit off the beaten track who were not the obvious um finds maybe not the people that would be on the lists of casting directors and he so he would just watch a lot of movies and see what actors uh he liked and I, so he watched mac and he was trying to cast very specifically a role that um that i was called in for that i didn't end up getting I got little Paulie, but I didn't end up getting this first role that he was calling me in for. Which one was it? But uh, am I allowed to say I? Su it may be delicate. I don't know. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I, I it was a much bigger role. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I was not the, uh, an obvious choice for it, 
But um, but he wanted to go against type, and so he watched a bunch of movies. He saw Mac, and he wanted to see that guy who played my character, Bruno. And um, and I went to George Ann uh, Walken's office, and she gave me like a whole pile of scenes. And she said, you're going to go on tape tomorrow, and you need to have these memorized. It's like a short phone book of scenes. <laughs> Very intense. And um, I just went back to my apartment. Can you like, describe, do you remember the scenes or will it give it away? Oh, I do remember the scenes. You know, I really, I don't mean to be, I, I'm no, not, it's okay. I'm, no, I totally respect it. Again, that's why it's, it's completely whatever your comfort level is. Um, a lot of people bumped into each other trying to get roles for shows and you're absolutely right. Some people are sensitive about it and some people are like, you know, it's the way the cookie crumbles. What I can tell you is that these, these scenes went from A to Z. There was every kind of emotion that being expressed in these scenes. Sometimes this guy was just, um, you know, telling an anecdote. He was just sort of a funny raconteur. And then another scene, he's like a murderous, he's in a murderous rage, you know. And in another scene, he's like begging for something that he really needs and wants, but, you know, angry that he's not getting. It was just crazy crazy chops that you would need to do this these scenes and i thought holy cow what the hell are they thinking you know but i swear to you what i felt like i channeled it i just i was like i've gotta i've just gotta pull it out and this came to me this way i, I have a little magical thinking as you can probably tell me now. but i was like okay this came to me out of the blue like this i i, I have to really rise to it and I did. And long story short, I keep saying that in these stories are too long. But I, no, they're I, fine. And, this is great. This is a podcast. Okay, okay. I think I auditioned that first round like like about five or six times, and they kept saying, you know, we really like you in the role. David really likes you in this role, but you're a little young for it, and you're just you're not you're not you know you're very much against type. And so that's why we keep having you back to just kind of just keep throwing more stuff at you and, and see. And in the end, they said, look, it's, it's, it's just not going to work, but David really loves you and he'll find something for you. And, um, and sure enough, it was only a few weeks later that they called and offered little Polly. You know, I had auditioned enough by then. Little Polly Germani. Um, yeah. were you, were you bummed? Oh yeah, sure. Not to get that role. Yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah, it was a big, big role. A great moment for the character, little Polly Germani, was when he antagonized the guy Tony was trying to get out of the waterfront home purchase. Um, you're oh on, yeah, you're on the boat <laughs> and you're cranking up yeah. the music. That had to be a fun day on location. Any any distinct memories from that particular episode or that particular shoot? That's funny that you would pick that day of all the days it was really fun to do it except that i was terrified because um I'm, I'm i'm really not like a boat boatsman and i had these little poly shoes on they weren't really the right kind of shoes and i don't know why because i mean we were pretty far from shore i could have been wearing any kind of shoe but i i, I feel like i remember they were not the right kind of shoe and this boat was very sleek the surfaces of it were, were like soup these white you know, laminated surfaces and the little, little running boards or whatever you call them all around the boat that we had to travel along. You see us, me and I think it was Max Casella. Who did Benny. Yeah. Benny Fazio. Benny Fazio. Yeah. 
you see us kind of running around. We have to set things up, but we're scooting around. And so the people who owned the boat showed us in the morning, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to zip, zip, zip along here, then just grab this rail and then scoot along here. And you're looking at like a six inch wide, you know, little ledge that so mostly my main memory of, of that day was terror. I was <laughs> like, I just Messing up slip. someone else's boat. I'm going to mess up that boat and I'm going to drown. We're out, you know, I'm just going to, I'm not, I'm, I can swim, but I'm no great swimmer. And I thought I'm going to like hit my head on the way down and I'm going to die. Today's the day little Pauling dies by accident. But uh, that didn't happen, luckily. Top one or two moments you remember from the whole Sopranos experience. An opportunity uh, for breaking news via the podcast, if you want. But just, uh, you know, after, uh, upon reflection, uh, many years have passed. Um, what are some things that really are top of mind for you that you look back on fondly or not so fondly? That's a, that's a good question. It's a hard question because there are a lot of highlights, but I'm going to tell you something. The thing, the first thing that comes to mind when you ask me that is, is the um, stuff that didn't, that was not on screen but the our LA trips, our LA trips, the show would go to LA for the awards shows, like maybe three or four times a year. So for the Emmys, for the Golden Globe Awards, the SAG Awards, and the Writers Guild Awards, and there's no reason that Little Polly should have been included in that. You know, the character, the, the actor playing Little Polly. I just, I mean, I did a lot of episodes, and I was on the show for a long time. But I, 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 but I'm a realist, and I know that you know I was below a certain line. I was in the ensemble, and it was a joy to be there. But there's no reason you have to take that guy on these awards trips. However, David Chase just decided that I was fun to have along, and he just I liked me around for some reason, and I and he so he'd invite me along. And let me tell you something. Those are some of my favorite me memories, just, just, you know, just ever, like just not just professional memories, but just of my life, <laughs> those trips, sure. they were just glorious. They were like, you know, you felt part of this, um, this fraternity that, um, we were right. The show was riding very high. Um, and you just felt part of this club that was super fun <laughs> And it just, it felt magical. And I knew enough to know to show up for it. Do you know what I mean? Sure. To, um, to not worry about anything and to just go, this is really good. <laughs> and all I'm going to do is enjoy this. You know, I am just going to enjoy this ride. And, and I did. You know, there's an extra exclamation point when a writer like you says it's really good. Again, because one of the things that might perseverate on on the podcast is the writing and the quality of the storytelling and the depth of character and the sometimes lack of plot, but it's all about these individuals just like existing mm. in this dynamic. And that's what people, that's why people made it appointment television. The first real show that was appointment television when there still was appointment television, right? It's because of yeah. this quality of what was on the page. Um, when I say Tony Sirico, what comes to mind? My uncle, that's what comes to mind. My uncle, I uh, love that man. I, I love that man. He um, was in a way, I mean, he in a way was like a soul center of, of that show, I think. Um, 
he, you know, he's, he, he, boy, he's a little bit defies description, Tony. He's a, he's a big personality. And I'll tell you something that, you know what I'd like to say about Tony is that I don't know if people know this. He's a very hardworking actor. Like people, he makes it look like he's doing nothing on screen. Like he's just being Tony because, you know, honestly, his, um, uh, his, his, my uncle, uncle Paulie, <laughs> Paulie Walnuts looks and sounds a lot like Tony Sirico. Not, not exactly, but, but a lot like Tony Sirico. And, and you may think with an actor like that, oh, he's not doing much, you know, he's just being himself. But to achieve that is, is a lot. And it's not just natural ability. He would really, really, he'd study those scenes. He'd study those beats. He knew what the hell he was doing. And he really had your back when you were on set with him. You know, he was so solidly there. And that's pretty, that's true of, of, of that entire cast, of course. But I had a lot to do with Tony, where, where you could really just relax and give your focus to him. You know, it's, a, I guess, one of the main points of, of the Meisner technique in acting is you, you sort of forget about yourself and you just put all your attention outside yourself on that other actor, on, on the situation you're in. That's where your thinking is, right? You're not trying to do anything. You're trying to react. And they have all these sayings about, yeah. uh, don't, um, you know, about not acting. I think there's a, a, a Meisner saying that's like, don't just act, stand there. I think what it is. It's this whole idea. Don't be trying to do anything except to be present and try to react. Just react to what's happening in front of you. And Tony gave you so much to react to that really he made life easy for any actor who was acting opposite him. Yeah, his timing was impeccable. I mean, you can be, the, the character can be a little bit of the individual. That's, that, that's definitely there. But to make it look that easy is not, is not accidental. And to make it's it... It's not accidental. Yeah, the cadence easy. and the rhythm, um, he is a, yeah. I mean, he, he beats through that show like a drum. I, I agree. And, and by the way, take after take after take, you know, his energy never lagged. His, I mean, you know, he knew exactly, like, you know, he was a dream for, like, continuity people, because he knew exactly, I did this on this line, I moved there on that line. I mean, the guy had, was, was technically really, really highly skilled. And it, it, it's easy to watch that performance and not, and not know that. You shouldn't notice it, and you don't notice it, but, um, but that's something that maybe a lot of people don't think of when they think of his performance, you know? Not noticing it, actually, though, is a mark of, mark of greatness, right? It's uh, yeah. dis- disappearing into the, into the character. Um, Absolutely. When I say James Gandolfini, what comes to mind? Well, you know, look, you know, heartbreak is the first thing. Like, whenever I, I think about James and, and uh, think about, you know, his life being cut short, the way it was, it's um, it's unthinkable that somebody with that huge presence that he had is is not here and so young. I, I don't know. I, I still can't wrap my brain around the fact that that he's uh, he's not walking this earth with us. There, but that, or you may you know you may hear this from a lot of people, but that's because it's true. He was a beautiful, beautiful man. That guy was so not 
Tony Soprano. <laughs> you know, talk about a brilliant actor. I want. I do want to tell you a personal anecdote. But one thing I I just want to say about him acting wise is that I was I was I forgot at what point this happened, but I you know was watching the show and I was appreciating uh, appreciating each uh, performance, sort of you know watching some episodes repeatedly and noticing different performances in each, really focusing on this time on Michael, this time on Evie, whatever. And then I realized, you know, all this time, I just, it's like James is the oxygen. He's mm. like the oxygen of the show. And in a, in a way you don't, you just, you can take him for granted. I mean this in the best sense. You just, he just is. And everybody gets to orbit around him, you know, as an actor. I mean, he was, I think that's such a, a towering performance. It's really unoriginal of me to, you know, praise that performance. Um, many better critics have done it. But it's really an astonishing body of work. Um, and, 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 he, and talk about invisible technique. It's invisible. He's just living and breathing it up there. But Jimmy did a lot of very kind and generous things for people. And he didn't like to, uh, he didn't like to, for much attention to be paid to that fact. And I'll tell you something that, again, maybe, maybe delicate to tell, but uh, I don't, I, I, I don't, I don't know why it would be, but um, it was the final season. It was, we were getting ready to do the final season of the show. And um, and I mentioned to you earlier that I never really made a lot of money on that show. And so for the final season, I was really going to make not a lot of money. <laughs> like, you know, uh, I don't know why, but they're very, I, I, I think that the above the line costs were so great that there was a policy. And I don't think HBO is alone in this, but uh, 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 I think most networks will do this. They'll pay you know, actors, they have to pay and then actors, they don't have to really pay, you know, at, at high rates. They, they don't. And I guess that really makes sense, but it was just a personal thing that I was like, damn it. You know, it's the last season. I'm still not going to really be able to get ahead here. And, uh, and then one day, and I had, I, by then I did have an agent, rather ineffective agent at that time. And, um, and one day she goes, so she gave me the offer. I was like, damn, that's lousy. You know, can you go back in there and see what you can do about it? And like two days later, she called me and she said, hey, um, I have a new offer for you. And she gave me the new offer and it was like 10 times that amount. I was like, what the hell did you say to her? Like, how did you get this? I mean, they've never, they've never taken a leap like that. They maybe will come up in a tiny increments, but what the hell happened? And she said, um, I heard that James Gandolfini went to bat for you. And uh, so a couple of days later, I go to work and I, I find Jimmy. And I was like, listen, I, this thing, is this true? What did you, oh, he said, no, that's nothing. He said, you know, I just, yeah, I did speak to, um, to Chris, um, saying the right name, the then president of HBO. Chris Albrecht. Uh, yeah, Chris Albrecht. He said, I did speak to Chris and I said, hey, there's these guys, um, 
you know, this kind of middle layer of guys who've been loyal soldiers the whole time for the almost the whole life of the show. And, you know, throw them some money, man. You know, don't 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 let them end the show without making some real money this season. Just just do the right thing. And then Jimmy said, and to his credit, he said, Chris took a look at it. He said, you're right. They're not getting paid enough. I'll take care of it. So he said, so really, you should thank Chris. I said, no, I'm not thanking Chris. I'm thanking you. You're the man who did that. Who does that? This really, this is a rare thing in this or any business for somebody, for a star at that level to take a look at salaries below him and go, you got to lift these up. You got to lift these up. Most people are just not. They don't have that awareness. There. They don't. And he did. And he went to bat. And because of him, you know, I was able to make a decent amount of money and buy a little time, buy a little breathing room. It was the most beautiful thing. <clears throat> this is a very, very typical thing for Jimmy. Very typical. It's beautiful. And I appreciate you sharing it. Um, yeah. When I say. I know, some of this may get me in trouble. Final person I want to ask you about. When I say David Chase, what comes to mind? Oh, oh. you know, the man's a prince. I mean, I, you know, I don't mean to be boring and like, I, I, but you're not digging for dirt or something like that, but I don't, but even if you were, I don't have it. I don't have any, um, the, the guy was for me, I can only speak of my experience, but I think pretty much everyone you speak to will say, say the same for me. He was absolutely princely. You know, he just, first of all, he plucked me out of obscurity for this role you know i love and he he saw one here's okay here's maybe the way i can say it is that he saw something he saw something that in me that i'm not sure that i knew was there i'm speaking especially about you know for that first role that he wanted me in he he saw something and so therefore showed me something that was in me that I would might not otherwise have seen. And he just has this great kind of, um, you know, confidence about it. Like he just he sees it. He knows it's there. He points it out to you. And he's like, so come on, let's, let's have it. You know, let, let, you know, come on, you know, it's there. Let's have it. Like his, his confidence and his knowingness uh, inspires that in you. He's a, he's a, a guy who could be very, he can be very, intimidating just his presence is intimidating i was always a little bit scared of david it took me a long time to to relax around him it really wasn't anything he was doing it's just that he's a very serious guy he's a guy of very few words he was sort of mythical to to me because like how is he creating this universe my god this guy is fucking brilliant and he is and so I, and I'm easily intimidated anyway, and so where I used to be. And so I was, I was always intimidated by him and I felt like he saw that and he would find moments to come and open up, um, you know, an avenue between us to say, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to deal with me in any special kind of way, you know, like you can just be you. Um, I, I, I think David is a man of piercing vision, like his, and even you can see it. When he looks at you or he looks at somebody, he doesn't, he won't brook nonsense. He doesn't stand for bullshit. 
If something's a lie, he knows it immediately. If if there's like a wrong attitude that's going to ruin the vibe of a thing he's trying to do, he knows that immediately and takes care of it. If you bring to him, you know, you're, you're, you come prepared, you come having done all your homework, you come with the right energy and the right spirit, he makes this way for people. He opens up an arena for people that is really rarefied. You know, look at what he created there. Um, that uh, sense of fraternity that I was talking to about earlier, you know, that's set from the top. Jimmy, of course, was was a, a prince on set. Edie is um, uh, like a, like a, I don't know, a, you can't say enough. I've really run out of words. She's really just one of the most beautiful humans I know. So they're the they're they're the top, um, and then David is really the top. And he too would just cre- created this like safe space. I said maybe a way to say it. Like here's an arena for us that is at, you can feel free, you can feel relaxed, and also you know again they're inherent though in that. I don't want to make it like it was soft. It wasn't a soft place. The inherent is that is in that is that you're going to come with your best game, and with your with a right attitude, and with your sleeves rolled up. And if you come with the, all those right things, you know, and 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 you're ready to work, you're gonna have a you're gonna have a beautiful time. You're gonna just have the best time. Mm. You're gonna get this material that's off the charts. You're gonna get an environment that allows you to to stretch and grow and feel safe and free. I mean, look at the work people did on that show. I, I I'm not saying that I got to to, to to go that far like that, but look at where where Jimmy had took his his work look where what, where what Edie had to expose on set and how far she had to go you know actors don't do that if they don't well first of all if they don't have the material they don't buy in but if they don't yeah they don't feel like safe that way i'm safe i'm free to do this somebody has my back and david created that david created that environment and then I love what you said about how he saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself that's the ultimate validation right i mean that's yeah, um, that's what it's all about. I gotta ask. Uh, I'm uh, fishing a little bit because uh, you, you keep you keep bringing it up, and it, it's gonna gnaw at me. Uh, the role that you uh, originally went in for. Can you say if it was New York or New Jersey? Oh, it was uh, uh, no New York. It was New York. It was New York. So it was it was a New it was a New York crew. You'll be able to figure it out. Okay. <laughs> Should I just tell you? Do you think that it's um? Is it delicate for me to say? I don't suppose. No, I, I actually don't. You know what? Say. If you if you want to tell me, you can tell me. I will edit it out unless you say otherwise. Let me ask it this way: Was it Johnny Sack? No, no, because it was later. It okay, was, it was later. later. So my my first season on the show was season three. Okay, and uh, so um, it was it was Ralph Cifaretto. It was the role that. Ah. Um, that's not going to offend him. That Joey Pants. That's not going to offend Joey Pants. A lot of people read for that. Um, yes. Eugene, um, what's his name? Oh, Eugene, Rob, Rob, Robert Fernaro. Robert Fernaro came on the podcast and he said that he originally read for that role and apparently he was booked for it. Oh, oh, well, if you know that, I'm going to tell you something. That's mainly who I was trying to protect. Okay. Because. <laughs> yeah, you're fine. That's you're fine. Because I love Rob. He's Robbie. awesome. Yeah. Oh, I love that guy. And and he and I, I, mean, I don't know how much he tells that story. I don't know if he tells it. I know it because he told me that, that he was cast in it. And then they, they, they 
decided after shooting a little bit, I believe that's how it went. I think it's because they booked um, a bigger, they got a bigger guy. They got it. They caught a bigger fish later in the game and they just reversed course. Um, yeah. And his name was on the credits of that episode, but it wasn't, you know, it was like, it was, wow. it was, yeah, it was, the, it wasn't the greatest thing. He wasn't thrilled about it, but he talked about it freely. And, um, and then I just thought okay, that. Good. Yeah. Oh, well then that's what it, well, that, that's what it was. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's what it was. It was for the role of, of Ralphie. And they had written, I guess, I don't know how they had all those scenes. Cause not, not all the scripts were written, obviously, but they, maybe they, they wrote like random scenes and then ended up retaining them because that's the, the, the pile of scenes that they gave me to prepare were scenes for him, for, for him throughout the season, ah. including the scene where he beats that, his girlfriend. To yes. Death. The, the stripper at the Bing. Yeah. But, Tracy. Yeah, they wanted it. Yeah. Tracy, they wanted, <laughs> I remember George Ann saying, you know, when you go in the room, you do, you have to actually, like, like you can't do it halfway, like bring something to beat something with and then really beat it to death. Yeah. Like, wait, wait, what are you telling me? He was like, and she said, no, you're going to have to really, so I brought in an umbrella and like, I don't know, a beanbag or something and I beat it to death. It's like, no, you have to really, really do it in the room. So, um, anyway, yeah, that's what, what a pivotal, was. what a pivotal role. You know, we're at the phase of the podcast where, uh, Ralph Cifaretto just died, whoever did this. And uh, going back all the way to David Proval's character, Richie April, um, no, the right. ultimate antagonist. It's always been this whole like Ralph versus Richie thing. And, um, you know, anybody you position up against Tony, who's going to get to do most of their lines with Tony, I can see why it's like a, it's a, it's a gargantuan role. And both were, both yeah. were portrayed brilliantly. Um, I think but so. thank you for sharing that, you know, you were, it, you were part of that because it's, it, again, it gives context and, it, and, and, and if anything, what it tells me as someone who's watched the show so many times, um, and appreciates it on such a deep level, the torment in getting that character, right. There was since there was sincere oh, yeah. torment in, in figuring it out and then to have to backtrack on who you originally cast and then. Um, you know, yeah. it, it wasn't a situation that was taken lightly. It was very, I'm sure it was agitated over by many people. Oh yeah. And I mean, he could have, you know, David could have cast, um, anybody, you know, yeah. by then the show was, was, uh, was really at that point for sure. Yeah. Thoughts on the ending. Um, you know, it's funny. I, there was a screening at HBO the uh, simultaneous with the airing of the final episode. Um, and again, I was invited because David Chase, God bless him, made sure I got included in all these things. The man's a saint. <laughs> he really is just for that alone. So I, I, I was at this screening and, and, you know, I had, I, I, I knew that I knew the episode. We, we had a table read of the episode. So, but it was our very final table read and so i don't think that i noticed or anybody fully noticed on the page how dramatic uh how you know radical that ending was we were more wrapped up in like oh my god this is our last table read you know um and so there was just a lot of emotion we every episode you do a, a, a read with all the actors the whole cast gets together and, and reads it out loud it was one of my favorite rituals of the show and um and so I remember being just, there were tears around the table and, and, and there was a lot of just heavy emotion. And somehow 
uh, it didn't really convey that ending. The extreme, the extremity of that ending didn't really convey itself in, in reading. And so, so now we go to, I go to this screening and the, that brilliant montage, that brilliant, not really a montage, but that brilliant sequence at the end, cutting inside and outside, you know, with Meadow parking the car and the whole thing. And I'm, I'm watching it and the music's playing. And then all of a sudden it stops and goes black. And I thought, oh, someone's getting fired. Like someone just <laughs> messed up. the. That's exactly what I thought. I thought whoever is in that projection room or whatever it is, their head is going to roll. And then the credits came up and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, that's the actual ending. Okay. At that moment, I doubted it. I'm not going to lie to you. I doubted it. I was like, I don't think you can do that. I don't think so. But I was, you know, a little undecided, but I thought, oh, I don't think so. And then I went home. This is exactly what happened. And I went, I, I, I live in Hell's Kitchen and the, the, the party, the screening was at HBO headquarters on 42nd and 6th Avenue. And so I'm walking across town and I'm thinking about it and thinking about it. And I get home and I said, I'm just going to watch it again and watch the whole episode again. I had it DVR'd or uh, maybe they just broadcast it twice that night. I don't remember, whatever. And, um, and I watch it. And now here comes the ending. This time I'm prepared for it. And it happens. And I thought, you know what? That's the most brilliant fucking ending of a series <laughs> I have ever seen. And that's where I stay with that. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And partly because it's so um because it's so unnerves people and it so enrages people and you're still talking and about it still talking about still it 12 years wow. later how how about that and every finale of every show that i've watched ever since i'm always comparing it to that finale did it love right? did it rise to that level and it's not even a question of rising it's like baking bread without the yeast the bread won't go up there's there's no comparison as far as a finale is concerned um and again that's that is a testament to the true genius there might be a t there's a, there's some hint in that there's a little bit of accidental in this you know oh you know you don't really know what kind of an ending you're going to have but i really think it was agonized over i had sydney Wolinsky on I he was agree. the editor on the show he edited the final oh, wow. episode he edited a, more than 50 percent of the episodes and he's one of the few people i asked him this directly you're one of the few people besides david chase that actually knows the stuff that's on the cutting room floor and mm. how many versions of this uh you know finale did you guys wrestle with and he he didn't i looked at him he looked me straight in the eyes and he wasn't going to give me anything because that's you know that's the code um, but his <laughs> eyes told me, his eyes watered a little bit and he ba it basically oh, conveyed wow. to me a lot. This was, lot. this wow. was a orchestral crescendo, if you will. Right. Like it was a master, mm. it was a master class in, this is what I've done for the past 10 years. And now I'm going to let you know how I'm going to end it, you know? Um, mm. and this whole notion that the audience is who got whacked is, uh, one of the most poetic things I've heard in recent years. It's, mm. And it's kind of what I buy. I don't believe Tony dies. I never did. Um, cause, mm. Because it ends on don't stop. Don't stop believing, right? Right. right. It's genius. Well, you know, the beautiful thing is you can, it will, you can't say this about a lot of uh, pieces of work. It will hold up to, to multiple interpretations and you will be able to find 
full-on justifications for any for you know well let's just say two main ones yeah you know, alive or dead yes he gets shot right there no he doesn't get shot right there just those two not an endless number of choices that that, that you could you could find and and as you know people have found uh you know a whole a ton of um of hard evidence in the episode itself and then david says that that mischievous thing whenever he's asked about it it's he says you know it's all there on the screen the answer is there i don't know why you're asking me i give you the answer it's there thoughts on a few more questions uh you've been very gracious with your time and i've had a real fun time chatting with you no this is really fun and i don't get to ever talk about this really (laughs) and it's one of the highlights of my life being on that show really was Thoughts on expanding the Sopranos world through prequels. There's a movie coming out and sequels in yeah. general. In general, you don't have to specifically opine on the Sopranos, yeah. but in general, are you a proponent of sequels and prequels and extending the IP or do you like to let things rest? I, I, honestly, I think if you were going to, if you're going, if you're going to do anything, I, I don't have any problem with saying, you know, this work was so rich that there's another, something more in it to tell. Um, I, I can't see any, any problem with that. What, where the danger is like, you know, what's it going to be, <laughs> you know, what's it going to be? I think a sequel would be super dangerous. Really? I, I don't know what, a, uh, but a prequel was a great solution. Um, because it's not really, you know, it's, I, I don't know. I didn't read the script. Um, I don't, I only know in broad strokes what I've been able to read in the press, like anybody else about the many things of Newark. But I thought that was so damn smart to go back to 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 the you know the their parents' generation and find some some kind of you know seminal stuff in there that that grows over the course of a generation into what we see on the planet. I thought that you know leave it to David to come up with um, the, 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 the the most intelligent um, way to to handle that. This this. Um, Material so is so rich for him, obviously so rich to the, uh, the point of overflowing. You see what he that, that this work just pounded out of him all those seasons. That uh, you know, there's more in there. Makes sense. There's more in there. To go backward in time, I thought was really smart. What do you think? Uh, I'm a huge fan and apologist. Like he can do no wrong in my mind. Um, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm cautiously optimistic though because. Um, it's just a thing, you know, like I'm a huge Rocky fan. I'm a huge Sylvester Stallone Rocky series fan. And after mm-hmm. five, you know, it became a thing. And then Rocky six, Rocky Balboa. And then it went into like old age Rocky. And, um, right, right. I'm still going to show up at the theater is my point. Um, right. but, it, but it takes a little bit away every time, you know, I think there's even a line right. from the Sopranos where, you know, each, each thing, it takes a little bit out of you. I think Bobby says that somewhere. So mm. someone's going to hear this and correct me, but each time you go through something, it takes a little bit more out of you. But, uh, given the circumstances, right. it is, a, it is a genius move. It is necessary. Look, everybody's spinning off their IP. So it's not unique. Breaking Bad just came out with a movie. Um, right. that I got through 15 minutes of and I was wondering when I could watch The Sopranos mm-hmm. again because it's just not the same. Wow. It's, not, it's not as good. Breaking Bad was great because it, you were on your toes for 45 minutes, right? The, with right, a two-hour right. movie, it's, it kind of plays like bagpipes mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah, it's a yeah. different experience. 
Let me ask you, uh, assuming that you're not, there's a possibility that you'll get called in for the premiere. You'll definitely be there. But assuming that you yeah. don't get called in, is it an opening night? Uh, are you there opening night? Is this something that you're excited about? I, I, I will see that thing as soon as I can see it. Um, I don't know that I'm on a, you know, any special list for the premiere, but uh, it's something I'm, I'm looking forward curious. to. I'm wildly curious to see it. And I'm hoping for the, I hope it's a glorious thing. I mean, um, but you know something about that movie that is most intriguing to me is that Michael Gandolfini plays the young, yes, uh, plays the young Tony Soprano, and I know Michael very well because of um, I mean I remember him as a young kid while we were doing Sopranos and um, I think he was about thirteen when Jimmy died and I remember him at the uh, the funeral and um, you know he was just, always was just this beautiful beautiful kid is very tender and i just have this memory that i really treasure of of the cast um gathering around him right in the church at St. john the divine just kind of just around him and loving him up and and trying to you know sort of help carry him through this tragic thing and um i just just remember the beauty of that scenario i don't mm. know and then but now here he is um this this many years later, it's not that many years later. What is it? Has Jimmy been dead? Is it ten years? No, it's not ten years. Yet. I forget. I, I think it's less than ten years. Yeah. I think it's like eight years. Yeah. Um, in any event, but now I work with Michael. Or I just finished working with him on the Deuce. Yeah. Yeah. He's great series great on that show. Yeah. I, I, so he's he plays the Chris Ballas song, mm-hmm. and then I get to write for him. <laughs> and um, he's such a he's such a good guy. He's so smart, and I do see so much of his father. I think he's a terrifically natural actor. And um, I, I, you know, we're going to see that that's uh, that's got to be heavy, and it's going to be a deep thing. I think for audiences to look at, you know, the young Tony Soprano played by Jimmy's son. That's quite something. Uh, backtrack for a second. Again, if this is not something that you want to talk about, that's fine. Um, but you are a writer. You were a writer when you were on the show. Did you ever try or did you ever want to write an episode? Like, was that ever I, on the table or did you ever have oh, a conversation yes. about that? Uh, you know, Terry Winter, who, uh, you know, God bless that man. It's another, that's somebody, again, that I, I love so much. That show, you know, there were a few people that I became friends with from that show that, um, you know, are, are really important in my life. That show is a gift that keeps giving. If you were, so, so Terry is one of those people who I became friends with then and who remains, I remain very close with now. He hired me to write uh, on vinyl. Um, unfortunately, short-lived on HBO. We did one season of that show on HBO. And, um, but we're also just buddies and we're actually working on a screenplay now together. And this is, that's a, he's a fucking great guy. And anyway, I befriended him very early on because I think one of the first table reads I uh, attended as a brand new cast member, I'm real nervous. There I am, you know, for the first time walking into this room. And uh, it was a script by Terry. I'm quite sure that's what it was. And I was not out by it. I just thought that is some ferociously good writing, like, holy cow. And so I sought him out and I just, I told him that. And, and, um, yeah, I told, mentioned that I was a writer too, but I wasn't looking for anything. I was thrilled enough to be on the show, and I just wanted to tell him that was fucking great writing, and I'm really, really excited about it. And and so he, we just became friends. And then, you know, he would do this thing where he'd say, 
you know, he, if he, he was covering set, which he usually did cover set as a writer, he so, sort of summoned me over to Video Village. It's a little place where the writer sits and the director sits and you look at monitors, you have headsets and you're, you're tracking the action from there. And he'd invite me over, come, come sit, you want to watch this? You know, he was sort of um, helping to train me. Uh, I don't, I don't, don't think maybe he was thinking of it that way. Neither was I, but now I realize that's sort of what he was doing. Um, because it, you know, it's, I spent the next bunch of years writing for television and that's what you, you know, he, he, that, that was my first glimpse of the, the writer's experience on set. Harry gave me the, that first glimpse. And over the course of things I, I said to him, you know, or he might've even said, to, let me read something of yours. And I showed him the screenplay. He said, you it's really good. He said, and you write excellent dialogue. And we always struggle to find writers who can write really good dialogue. <clears throat> I said, well, I am here. Uh, you know, <laughs> uh, Sign me up, so coach. Please. Put me in, coach. <laughs> you know? So I said, why don't I write some sample scenes so that um, you can show them to David? And I did. And David was very, through Terry, I never spoke to David directly. David was very flattering about the, the work. But he said, I really would, um, I think, believe that this is true, that he didn't want he had a thing about no writer actors. Like if you're acting on the show, act on the show. And if you're writing on the show, write on the show. And I really don't want a lot of crossover. And he did, of course, Michael always wrote, mm-hmm. um, Michael wrote episode five episodes, was, I think. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. You're an, you are an encyclopedia, but now that was something that he had <laughs> it's, it's, it's unhealthy. I know. <laughs> no, no. I can name them for you if you'd like to, by the way. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> one I know is the Columbus Day episode. Yeah. The only one I know. Christopher. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Christopher, right. Um, but I think he, he negotiated that very early on. <clears throat> by the way, I didn't, I, you know, that I, I, I was, of course, disappointed. I really wanted to get in that writer's room. But since then, I've noticed that that's, it makes sense. Um, to not have people doubling up when you're running a writer's room, you need the writers full attention and you also need them fully available when production gets going and you have a couple of writers, one writer is out writing, another writer is covering set. You have your remaining writers to break the next couple of episodes. You really can't have this thing of, Oh, well, you know, one writer is going to be shooting an episode for four weeks or whatever it is. This is not that kind of time. So, uh, so now it makes sense to me why David would have that rule. At the time, it made no sense to me. I was like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> no. uh, but, Again, uh, the, so the, yes, I wanted to. Yeah, no, the but the uh, the general knows the the field. He knows the he knows the moves. He knows the flank. Yeah. He knows he's got he's got this whole thing mapped out. He's playing chess, right? The show analogizes chess all the time, and and uh, You're right. he's he's looking at all the pieces from a thirty five thousand foot level, and you just got to believe in the. You gotta, yeah. you gotta be, you gotta be all in. But I, th- I, I meant to ask you that earlier and I'm glad I, f- I didn't forget. I had wrote, written it down. Um, what's yeah. the last good book you read? What is the last good book I read? You know what? I, I am reading like police related materials right now because it's an actually good segue because I'm, I'm writing on um, Tommy right now, which is, uh, Edie Falco's new show on CBS. Yeah, I mean it, it's going to air in January. Right. She, in, yeah. The first, the first she, female police chief of staff um, in Los Angeles. Right? Yeah. That's the premise. Yeah, well, you're, yeah, you're good. Wow. Yeah, that's it. That's the premise. And so I've been sort of focusing on that stuff. So I've been reading some 
not not novels, but like some historical stuff or some memoirs. The one that really I'm still working my way through that I think is just spectacular is Homicide, mm. David Simon. I'm almost done with that. That's a great and, book. Um, so even though I'm not, it's not the last, but I'm still reading it. Can that, I uh, uh, can I offer you a recommendation? Yeah, please. Ghetto Side by Jill Leovi. She's a Los Angeles Times reporter. It's one of the best books I've ever read. And it's totally relevant to, it's all about LA, first of all, and a crime that takes place south of the 10. And it came out a few years ago. I have a copy that I have like dog-eared and underlined and, and like, you know, made like weird, like animations on because it's, 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 it's very cinematic and it's, it's, it's like a writer's, it's a writer's book. Um, I think if, if you, if you're, if you've heard of it, that this should, I have heard of it. I, I own a copy of the book. Okay. It's, it's, it's on my shelf of police books, but I haven't, I haven't cracked it open. I'm not going to, it wasn't going to be my next one. Actually. But <laughs> give now, it 10 now, pages, now. give it 10 pages. And I guarantee you, you won't be able to put it down. Oh, that's a great recommendation. Thank you. Ghetto side. Ghetto okay. side. And I yeah, think it's, yeah, I think it's, yeah. I, you have it. Great. So that's, that's, I the, do. The, I hard, do have it. the hard part is getting the book, the easy, or the hard part now is just going to be cracking it open. Right. But when you said, well, LA, in a mode of just going through them. Yeah. When you said, oh, LA, I great. thought of that immediately. Um, and if you haven't oh, read, and you. if you haven't read it yet, actually, it could greatly inform your writing, or at least give you like a. You're a New Yorker, right? You're a New York guy. So I am. I'm born and raised. Yeah, yeah, it will take you right into the into the heart of Los Angeles, and you'll feel. Oh, this is great. You're walking through the tunnels, and you're in it, and chiefs of staff, and the corrupt police department, and and people angling. It's very The Wire meets LA. Mm. Um, I wonder why it has not been uh, adapted. It is. Someone has the rights to it. If you look up the copyright on the book, someone's got the rights. Um, but you know how these things go. They just, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and take forever. It's yeah. going to take a, you're going to need a big lead. And I feel like it's got Michael B. Jordan written all over it, to be honest with you. If, uh, I, was, if I was thinking about, if I was central casting for it, um, right. Michael B. Jordan's got to be, it's got to be a Michael B. Jordan project to make it big enough. Once you crack it open, you'll see what I mean. Oh, I will. I'm going to, you know, I'm moving it to the top. Favorite, this. favorite music right now. Favorite music right now. Oh boy. Doesn't have to be anything current. Just like, what have you been listening to the past, in the last week or month or. Well, it's almost like, um, a little embarrassing. You can say really, what are you, why are you going there for? But I've been (laughs) spontaneously rediscovering, um, like more obscure Carol King albums from the seventies. Albums like fantasy. I love that album. Fantasy. And um, there's one called Rhyme and Reason. And um, I don't know why I haven't listened to them. I, was a huge, I, I listened to them in real time when, I was, when they came out when I was a teenager. But I, I think I, by accident heard one song on the radio or somewhere. I heard uh, Cordette's own. Her, uh, it was off the Fantasy album. And, I, and it made me remember that album. And then it started me on a, on a little uh, jack. And <laughs> that's what I've been... Rediscovery is the coolest thing about music, though, isn't it? Like, just yeah. being able to, you, you heard it in a certain era of your life, and now you're rediscovering it in a different era of your life, and it takes on, takes you back, but it also gives you new meaning and new memories. Oh, man, it's really, uh, and the, the stuff that holds up really, you know, really holds up. I'm usually, a, like, a funk, soul, R&B, and, um, like, house music. I'm, a, I'm actually, like, an old house head. 
I used to go to all the underground clubs like Paradise Garage and Sound Factory and all those places. I still love that music. Did you have a favorite DJ? Well, in Larry year? Levan is sort of the you know the high priest. Yeah, Larry Levan, and then uh, I love Junior Vasquez in um, at the Sound. Have you heard of uh, Todd Terry? Sure, Todd Terry's great. Yeah, yeah, I love. Are you familiar Terry. with everything but the girl? I don't know if I know. Oh. Everything but the girl was a duo. It was a husband and wife duo. And their music got remixed in the 80s and 90s. Oh, wow. And it's some of the best dance music around. Everything but oh, the girl. Oh, I'm going to listen. You know, it's ringing a bell, that name, but it's not, it's not a group I know, like, you know, off the top. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned House, that's and that's funny. what came to mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you play music when you write? Like, when you write for no. shows? Or is it a solitary, a completely solitary, quiet environment for you? No, I, I like as quiet as I can get it, but um, but my I work out of my apartment in Midtown in... Um, it's not usually quiet, but that's okay. You get the, the city, the city noise. ambience counts as quiet. If it's just city <laughs> ambience, that's a different kind of quiet. Right. Ambient noise is fine. Yeah. It's when it's like one steady source, you know, uh, uh, like a loud party breaks out, you know, out. And then it's like, no, nah, I can't function if it stays. And do you, um, do you write scripts longhand or do you, are you all computer? Not anymore. It's all on the computer. And then, and then, uh, and then a lot of, you know, hand notes, I, I, of course, edit by hand and all that stuff, but, um, but no, yeah, on the computer now. Yeah. And finally, last question, what are you working on right now and what's on your plate? Well, I just wrapped yesterday, my episode of uh, Tommy, of my, you know, of, of season one of Tommy. And so, um, really the, the next thing I should be thinking about is the next episode of Tommy. So that's one thing I should be um, developing a story, you know, my next story to pitch for that show. Um, I may not get to write another episode this season, but there's, but that's, but that's an open question. So I, I need to be prepared for that. So that's one thing. And then um, there is, and then there's a couple of projects that I, you know, there's a screenplay project and there's a, a, uh, a, a pilot episode that both exist in draft form that when I have a hiatus coming up from the show, I want to return to those and get, choose one and really try to bring it fully up to speed. Um, so, so, so that's what's kind of waiting in the wings. One of those. And I, I don't, I'm not even sure which one yet. And we'll see which one calls to me. I haven't had time to think about my own work right now. Cause we've been, it moves really fast yeah. on, uh, on network. It moves really quick. It goes really slow until it goes really fast. You know, yeah. that's just kind of the way <laughs> yeah. life goes. Well, look, I, you know, I know we're wrapping it up and I want to say to you in, 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 in this, here, just a snapshot of this moment, the two things that are really driving me forward right now, like financially and just creatively and filling up my, my life in a great way right now, um, in terms of the professional aspect of things, two things. It's the screenplay that I'm writing with Terry and it's Tommy. That, that I'm working on for, for Edie. And both those things wouldn't exist right now if not for The Sopranos. The Sopranos... The gift that keeps on giving. Room. It really, really is. It really is. It's amazing. It's an amazing place to stop, too. Carl, thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. 